welcome to the Squamates Podcast. This is a totally serious podcast about herpetology, where we talk about reptiles and amphibians, and we use sometimes a little bit of strong language. I am one of your three co-hosts. My name is Mark D. Schertz. I'm a herpetologist and a PhD candidate. In the last, like, two months of my PhD, panic sounds. Um, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, uh, Ethan and Gabriel. Go ahead and introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm Ethan Kosak. I'm a cartoonist responsible for a number of things, books, illustrations, and I keep a lot of newts in my basement. And Lovely. I'm Gabriel Ugeto, and I'm a scientific illustrator and paleo artist. And I used to work in herpetology, but not anymore. Excellent. So, he, out- um, he outgrew it. Yeah, he he did. He <laughs> moved on to bigger and better and more profitable things. Uh, <laughs> so I have just looked in the show notes and realized that we didn't write down anything for Miss Snake. So we'll pretend that we got everything exactly right in the last episode. I know that we did. Oh, we're I I forgot to mention we're joined once again by our co-host, the Eleutherodactylus, that lives in my in my office. So, he's now he's become our unofficial mascot he, now. He is our unofficial mascot next to Brunhilde. Yes. That's true. And I do remember I made a mistake uh, last episode when talking about iguanas. I said that Iguana Delicatissima lived alongside uh, native populations of what was before believed to be Iguana Iguana in some of the Lesser Antilles, and that's not the fact. The Iguana Delicatissima lived with introduced populations of Iguana Iguana. So. Ah, you're, dead to me. you're dead yeah. to me, Gabriel. How dare you? There were also a number of errors um, or, or issues that were related to the... Um, to the sea snakes part, which we sort of warned that would that would happen, <laughs> because it's really a subject yeah. that none of us really knows much about. Um, but I'm just trying to pull up. There, there was very helpful insight on what exactly those um, is, problems is, is, were. It's the listeners' fault because they're the ones who chose that subject. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. When in doubt, so, blame the listeners. Yes, exactly. you're welcome. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> all right well my computer is being really slow so i'm not sure that i'll ever be able to pull up what the problems were so we'll pretend they weren't there um there there are in fact a number of changes that uh, or or missed snakes from the last episode which you will be able to find on the show notes there are also beautiful pictures of microcephaly in sea snakes in the show notes provided by the same person who pointed out these issues who's as i say the name and stuff is not coming up on my computer so i can't tell it to you um oh well but we will so, put those in the next miss exactly well they will be in the previous episodes miss snakes where <laughs> oh, right, they belong okay. <laughs> Hopefully there won't be any additional errors uh, introduced in this episode, but we'll just have to see. Um, so we can just let's just let's just plow right on. We'll move in to the works in progress section where we talk about what's going on with us. Um, this has been another eventful month for me. I've had a paper accepted in Zutaxa, which will be coming out early next year. It's a new gecko. It's pretty sexy hoping that we'll get a little bit of news coverage of that one. Um, So that one's cool. And then I have three papers that I've gotten back with minor revisions, which is fun. And then we have also a new paper that we just submitted, which is another new gecko. 
So there's all of that going on, lots of new science. I've also just started working on my thesis, which as I said before, is due in about two months. Um, and so I literally started writing on it yesterday for the very first time. <laughs> Um, but it'll be fine. I'm not too worried. I'm, I'm very, there's considerable concern, uh, but we're just going to pretend that it's not an issue. Um, yeah. And other than that, I've been working on various different papers and, um, and, uh, a grant for my postdoc, which I'm hoping to submit early next year as well. And we will see how that goes. And that's my side. Gabriel, how are things for you? Um, super, super busy as well. I've been working on this never-ending commissions that I cannot talk about much. Um, but one of them is, a, is for a new children's book about uh, baby dinosaurs. I've been slowly making progress um, with that <laughs> It one. looks like it's killing you. <laughs> well... It's just that I thought, and I, I in, in my schedule, I had it planned that I was going to do, um, I mean, I have a very tight schedule, and I try to adhere to it, and the problem is that when other people don't adhere to it, it causes problems for my, for my schedule, but, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get that finished, and it's a book about um, young and baby dinosaurs for children. So it's actually really cool and it's, it's nice and they have been very good with, uh, to me to allowing me to, you know, make the dinosaurs really accurate, which is always a concern of mine. I don't want to be... Especially in children's books, right? Well, yeah, I think it's especially necessary in children's books. So they don't, you know, <clears throat> are looking at movie monsters and stuff. Yeah. And, um, and also I've been commissioned to do some work for a museum that I cannot really disclose anything about, but that's a large commission and I've been working all month long on that one as well. Very um, cool. And I, I might be doing some uh, work for Mark as well in January. So. Oh yeah. Oh, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> there is that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wanted to have a pretty thesis cover and I was like, hey, I know a good illustrator. <laughs> so so I might be doing that. And that's it. What about you, Ethan? Uh, I am also doing commissions as usual, finishing up some of that, and I'm trying to put a pitch together for a short graphic novel idea I had about uh, warring factions of dust mites that each live on different <laughs> eyebrows. Oh, that's awesome. On different eyebrows. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Very good. Okay. Well, we can just move straight on then, if that's all we have to say in terms of yeah. Miss Snakes. Yeah, what a we should smooth also, episode we, so far. We, we should also and, wish people a Merry Christmas. Because this is yes, going to be kind of like a and a Happy New Year also, because this is our, like our, oh, yeah. our end of the year episode. So That's true. I don't know which, which section that would go in, <laughs> I guess. Happy holiday time now <laughs> yeah. at the end of the works in progress bit. Mm. I feel like it maybe should have come at the end. <laughs> but yeah, but no we're worries. Forget because usually at the end we're like, okay, it's time to finish. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Because it's been three hours and we're like, oh, I need to end. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, right. yeah, exactly. Good. Um, let's talk about some breaking notes. Breaking notes. Breaking notes. 
Yeah, so uh, there are a few, well, there are loads of new papers. I'm always astonished by how much new research is coming out every month. Um, but this time we've really tried to keep it as small as possible because we don't have that much time and we want to get on to the main discussion, which today is about taxonomy. Too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, gosh, guys, stop writing papers. Stop working. Yeah. It's, it's it ridiculous. It yeah. Come on. Uh, so our first paper, I mean, we don't really have to tell you very much about this because undoubtedly you've heard the news. Graham et al. Plus one, a new species of siren. Siren reticulata. Exactly. Let's, let's give people was... a, a really quick run on in, you know, a, a really quick idea what a siren is. Okay, a siren is a uh, a classical sort of mermaid-like figure who sits on rocks and makes boats come and <laughs> drown and that that's a siren, right? <laughs> and <laughs> they're also manatees. Manatees are also oh, yeah. sirenids. Yeah. Sirenids. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, because yeah. they are believed to be the origin of the myth. Yes, and also because every time you hear a manatee going by, it goes. I, I'm just. I don't. You know what? I know that's supposed to be the origin of the myth, but I don't buy that because how drunk would you have to be? <laughs> well, they're supposed to be dude gongs, not manatees, but dude gongs. Yeah. Which, dude which gong, apparently develops some sort of. I don't know if this is true, but this is the origin. It apparently, develops some sort of breast like. Yeah, so they make him. Yeah, because they're among the only mammals that have uh, anterior placed um, memory memory glands. Glands. Yeah, I stand by my statement. (laughs) All right, and sirens are also very large salamanders. Some of the largest. Yeah, some of the largest indeed, and they have only anterior limbs, right? Correct. They have no hind limbs. And really yeah. large, uh, really large gills. Gills, yeah, yeah. So there's a new species that was just discovered in 1970, and <laughs> then it was forgotten about. <laughs> and then in 2009, apparently, this guy—I don't know if you've heard of him. His name is something like David Steen. Uh, on Twitter, he goes by Alongside Wild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he may so, have had. He may have had. He may have figured heavily into the lore of the does it fart. Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> escapades. Well-known fart expert David Steen <laughs> in 2009 was doing some some survey work and found a siren and uh, triggered the reinvestigation of this thing that had actually been discovered in 1970. Uh, with like the preliminary notes had said. Oh, this is actually maybe interesting and is different from these other species, but you know we're not going to deal with it. And so now they've dealt with it, and it's been described based on genetics and morphology. It is the second largest salamander in the United States, probably second longest, I should say. Um, After our uh, 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 amphiumas, yeah. yeah. Oh, our amphiumas bigger. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Especially the uh, one-toed, uh, the three-toed amphiuma is huge. Yeah, you were thinking of, well, you were thinking of hellbenders? No, I was th- just thinking within this genus. I had totally forgotten oh. that amphiumas are so much bigger. But of course. But they're big. Yeah. They're, they're big. I mean, this is a big salamander. It is big. This is a 30-centimeter salamander. That's, it's a, like that's a, it's, over it's, a foot. Yeah, I mean, they're almost, like, they're as long as, some of them are as long as my arm, and they're almost, 
as thick. <laughs> They're huge. Yeah. yeah. So that's cool. It made all kinds of news because it's not that often that we find uh, so like large, large undescribed vertebrates within the United States. Does that and does that also make Steen a cryptozoologist? I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, why? Because they're cryptobranchids, or no, they're not cryptobranchids. But no, they're not. But it would be <laughs> perfect if they were. Vertebrate <laughs> because in it's the a large US. vertebrate that he, you know. Well, it hadn't been rumored before. I think it has to have no, been rumored. Had. No, it had. They. It was known as the leopard eel. Oh. Mm. Yeah, you see, this is the problem. I only read the paper and not any of the news coverage. Yeah. So <laughs> it was it was locally it was ethno known. Ah, yeah, all right. Because well. ha- it lives in Alabama, right? Where is the distribution? Alabama and yeah, and I think the uh, Florida Panhandle. The Panhandle. I think. Yeah. 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 So new new salamander, very exciting. All right. Uh, the next thing, a uh, new paper by <laughs> Escure et al. Um, in, it's an accepted manuscript in evolution. The paper's title is How Mountains Shape Biodiversity, the Role of the Andes in Biogeography, Diversification, and Reproductive Biology in South America's Most Species-Rich Lizard Radiation. Squamata leolamidae. So this is um, what is a actually, Leo, what is a leolamid? Yes, that is very important. And that's a group of um, southern Andean and southern South American iguanians that, okay. for people that live in the United States, look very similar to uh, fence lizards in overall appearance. They kind okay. of cover the same ecological niche. They live in rocks. Most of them are like um, saxiculus, which means that they live in rocks. And there are a ton of species, um, especially if, uh, in southern Andes. Uh, it's super, super. I don't, well, I don't know, Mark, if you, I don't remember how many species there are now, but it's, it's, Ooh, I don't know, really a lot. Like, um, and they, every year they discover many, 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 because I think this is what this paper deals about is um, the Andes are, uh, an amazing zone for speciation because, it, it, you know, most mountain ranges are, but the Andes appear to be particularly yeah. good at that. The Andes are probably the most, bi- single most biodiverse terrestrial biome in the world. Yeah. For at least for reptiles and amphibians. Yeah. But probably also for all of so, the other things. And so Lyolemus, uh, there are a few other genera, including that in the family Lyolemidae. That's what they are. So it's, a, it's a small primer on what Lyolemus lizards are. Yeah. I don't think they have yeah. a common name in English. I don't know if they do. Oh, dibs. I, I'm also not aware <laughs> of them having a, a common name. Um, For people working in the neonotropics, the northern part of South America, um, the Lyolemus are in many niches uh, uh, uh I forgot the word. I'm trying to think of the word, <laughs> the word that I want to say. Uh, but they are like um, their niches in the northern part of South America are covered by tropidurids, which people might be a li- slightly more familiar with, like tropidurus and um, plica and stuff like that. Those are also very much fence looking, fence lizard looking mm-hmm. um, lizards. Yeah. 
So this new paper um, provides a new dated phylogeny of the Lyolamidae. And then they test some hypotheses on basically where this diversity came from. And they find that the Andes has acted as a species pump. So basically just diversification can happen over elevational ranges very quickly. Um, and that uplift boosted the diversity and, uh, well, boosted the diversity by creating allopatry between different groups. So if you can imagine in a flat plane, you have something that's distributed uh, equally. Now, if you raise the, bit, the, the middle of that bit and you can't get your lizards to go over the top of the middle of that bit, suddenly you have two isolated populations. We've all been there. Yeah, <laughs> this is very similar to the paper that we discussed. Uh, I don't know if that it was last show, the show before that, um, about how uh, altitude. Yeah, uh, that was, was oh, last yeah. episode. And remember how I mentioned that somebody working in the Andes should look at Lyolemus um, because they would be, you know, very good candidates for that. It seems like somebody did. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So this is actually quite a, a popular um, topic of research to, to look at how um, mountains act as uh, species pumps. It's something that I'm working on as well. So um, what's, uh, the other th thing that's interesting is they looked at um, parity mode. So whether or not they are giving birth to live young or laying eggs and um, they reconstructed at least one reversal to oviparity which is often held to be an impossible feat. Um, but there are now increasing, um, there is now increasing evidence that this does happen every now and then, that things go back to being oviparous. So, and, and especially actually, in squamates. And actually there is, a, there is a theory that says that the, um, well, this is a fringe I don't know if it's a French, French theory, but there is some, <laughs> there is some hypothesis that the actual um, um, ancient condition of amniotes might be uh, viviparity, not, not, not egg-laying, but mm -hmm. viviparity. Mm -hmm. So that would be very interesting. All of these things are very difficult until you actually find the eggs or the fossils with the, and, you know, the, the fossil history that's related to these um, these types of habits. But at least in this at this uh, more recent scale, it's always interesting to see which directions are possible and try and understand what that, you know, what kind of evolutionary changes were required by modern fauna. Right. So um, a bit of a genome report. In the, uh, for the next papers, we have uh, five new genomes that have been published in the last month. Isn't that crazy? It's ridiculous. It's like, just That's... a few years ago, there were only six or three genomes. And now this year alone, I think we've had uh, 18 genomes published or something. That's crazy. It's just, it's doubled this year. Um, so, really crazy. So, first of all, we have two new uh, genomes from... So the genome of Lacerta viridis and Lacerta bilineata, which are some of Europe's most charismatic lizards, um, were just published in GigaScience by Colora et al. Um, they talk mostly about the speciation and the patterns that you can infer from the genome on that scale. Um, and then we have another paper by Quesada et al. that was published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, oh. which has the genome of Lonesome George. 
Nice. Uh, who was the final um, living survivor of uh, Chelonoides? Chelonoides. Chelonoides. Oh yes, Chelonoides. Chelonoides. Abingdoni. Abingdoni. Yeah. One of the Galapagos turtles. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and Aldabra is Gigantea. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't have time to look at this in detail. It would be potentially really interesting um, thing to look at, also because there's been some discussion of whether or not the giant tortoises across the world are monophyletic um, or not. But anyway, they are talking there a lot about um, aging and the uh, landscape of uh, of aging genomics and trying to understand how the tortoises, what tortoises can really say about um, genomic, uh, like the process of aging and how it Te can be reversed. Telomeres and such. <laughs> yes, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's really cool. That it's, it's uh, really actually not a lot of turtles and tortoises that are available as genomes yet. So that's really cool. I feel like I feel like the research is going to come back with step one: be a tortoise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in order to be, in order to get very, very old, <laughs> <laughs> become tortoise, <laughs> then become old. Yep. Step three: profit. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, probably the most exciting new genome of the month is that of the tegu. So oh, um, the black and white so the, Argentinian tegu, the Salvatore Mariani. Yeah. Yes. So this genome was sequenced with both short-range and long-range um, uh, next-gen sequencing techniques, which means that actually it is, at least according to the authors, the best genome for any squamate out there, which is really cool. Um, in fact, the first author and last author are both on Twitter, so we can give shout-outs to them. Uh, first author is Julian Roshito, and the last author, uh, Julian Roshito, is at J-U-R-O-S-C-I-T-O on Twitter, and the last author is uh, Michael Hiller, at Hiller Mick, M-I-C-H, on Twitter. And... Um, this genome was basically published as a, well, on the side of another paper that they published in Nature Communications last month, which we unfortunately missed in the last episode. Um, but it's very cool. So in that previous paper, which is called Phenotype Loss is Associated with Widespread Divergence of the Gene Regulatory Landscape in Evolution, they talk about um, conversion evolution in body shape and especially the two things... Um, losing your limbs and losing your eyes. And they compared genomes across the squamates and they showed that in, in radiations that were losing their eyes and radiations that were losing their limbs, in both cases, um, the loss of functionality of the, of the features that they were losing was associated with the loss of trans tra transcription factor binding sites. So you're losing the regulatory elements, and because you've lost the regulatory ele elements, you're no longer having the right expression profile, and so you don't get the limb forming or the eye forming. It's a which great, is just, uh, it is so cool. It, it is cool. It is so cool. I was going to say, it's a great, it's a great REM now, song, too. 
losing Which? my <laughs> losing my regulatory uh oh yeah story. that's oh, me no, in that, the corner that's mark level <laughs> that's me in the spot <laughs> losing my regulatory right. items. No, 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 no. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's remind listeners. Uh, we would way. like to talk about Tegus at some point. At least I would like to talk about Tegus in, de- in more detail yeah. at some point. So Tegus yeah. are, are yeah, they're very cool. They're they're Tegus sort of are super cool. Yeah, the new it's... world, the new world version of of monitor lizards. You know, like they, they well, they. T- to pin and beans, yeah. Uh, yeah, niche-wise, I mean, you know, I mean, they're they're. It, it's so weird that we have this new world giant lizard, like that. Several. So cool. Yeah. Except for iguanas. <laughs> Except for iguanas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Which yeah, are actually was... larger sometimes. True. True. Very large lizards. Um, I I was just really thrilled by these two papers. I thought they were. Super cool. The one in Nature uh, Nature Communications is, of course, open access. Have a look at it. First of all, the figures are beautiful. And secondly, the story is just really cool. And now we have all of this stuff set up. So you can do, as the next step, you can start to knock out and knock in these features, these regulatory elements associated with, for example, limb bud formation. And we could take the limbs off of developmental models which would be so cool to try and understand really how all of this stuff is happening. So that was a real highlight. Um, it's, uh, it's a shame that we missed that last month. We missed it because it did not have any of the words in my keyword search in the title. And it, oh, it just happened that when I was reading this, um, the new Tegu genome paper, uh, they referenced that other paper. And I was like, oh, yeah, we definitely should have talked about that. So that's cool. And actually, on a related note, the next paper... Um, Bergman and Morinaga have had a paper accepted in evolution, available as an accepted um, manuscript, the title of which is The Convergent Evolution of Snake-Like Forms by Divergent Evolutionary Pathways in Squamate Reptiles. So this is again talking about limb loss. And what I find fascinating here is that they're basically saying that... um, more or less everything evolves, they, they really do converge. So two independent lizard groups losing their limbs will converge indeed on body shape. But that body shape or, or the way that they converge is contingent on their evolutionary history. So you cannot have something that was formerly, I don't know, a... Uh, uh, Let's take the example of anguids. You can't take an anguid lizard and make it look like a skink. They converge on the same body pattern, but they they are left with the traces of their of their anguid history mm-hmm. and their skink history. And so you, it's not a deterministic. Um, this is exactly the thing that you look like. Yeah. It's rather you you resemble one another, which is of course logical, uh, but it's a nice demonstration of it. And of course, um, the loss of limbs is a really fascinating and and cool thing to study at, at any case. And it's um, something that has happened, as we said before, something that has happened many, 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 many times in right. desert evolutionary yeah. history. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I I was thinking, Gabriel, you must know a lot about this topic. Um, you know those. Uh, I think they're aquatic reptiles, the the ones that have ridiculously long necks 
and every neck vertebra is super stretched. Like elasmosaurid? Oh, you mean like tanistrophates? The ones that are like tanistrophates. The one that. Gotcha. <laughs> it's a lizard. It's well, a yeah, happened many times. I know what they look like. like. Yeah, I mean, those. Uh, well, it happened both in plesiosaurs, in elasmosaurid hmm. plesiosaurs. They have the same thing where they had. No, I'm lying. Plesiosaurs also had a lot of vertebrae, but it's tanistrophates, what you're talking about. Tanistrophates um, had very long, but few. Very, exactly. Cervical exactly. vertebrae. Yeah. So this is. They they are a total exception because their ver their their necks must have been extremely stiff, rigid. Yes, they, were. they could rigid. not have been they could not have been very wavy. Uh, like a no. giraffe. I mean, think about it like that. Like giraffes have the same sort of. Do giraffes have extended vertebrae though? Because like the the giant um, uh, sauropods did not have super extended vertebrae, did they? No. No, not really. Neck vertebrae. No, uh, no, so, no, no. Yeah, so this is this is the thing. That, so those, the, those. If you look uh, at the, uh, just to give an example to Ethan, and this is what Mark is talking about, like Tanistrophaeus. You you know what this thing yeah, looks yes. like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it it had a super super long neck, and the vertebrae look like um like a humerus. Or a finger in the in the length, you know what I mean? Okay. Like they are super, yeah, I guess, super long. I guess where I was coming from, I was commenting more on like they still have the same number of vertebrae that most other tetrapods would have in well, their neck, though. Correct? That, it's that just that varies, though. But that varies, though. That varies, varies a lot. lot. Yeah, yeah, that's what Mark is saying. Yeah. Like, for example, if you look at um, Elasmosaurus, the plesiosaur with a super long neck, they have a huge number of neck vertebrae. Because you know they, okay. they, they they didn't increase, and it's the same thing that Mark is saying here. They, 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 the 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 lizards are becoming snake-like, not by elongating their vertebrae, but by adding exactly. That, uh, it's yeah. like exactly. a duplication, and of, of course, they they mostly add them caudally, right? So they they're not necessarily getting additional neck vertebrae and getting very necky. Um, but I was giving that as a parallel because it's the only known example. Uh, or the only example that I am aware of where there is a group where they have gotten a extremely elongated um, part of the vertebral column through the elongation of a vertebrae themselves. Mm -hmm. Whereas anything, and, and, and the reason for that is obvious, if they had a stable, if, if, if you want to become serpentine in your movement, being stiff, which is the result of extending your vertebrae, is not a solution. <laughs> and yeah. actually, this ties also very nicely into the last episode where we were talking about the microcephalic snakes. Where it, oh, yeah. <laughs> Gabriel is now showing a picture of what the vertebrae of these things look like. Yeah. We will maybe put a picture in the show notes, maybe? Yeah. I, I always thought they looked like... Uh, uh, like Crazy. Like they evolved to be like the little drinking bird toy or something. Like they <laughs> well, dipped there's down been a lot. The <laughs> we won't go into that because it's a huge problematic subject. But there has been a lot of um, uh, back and forth in what these things were doing because there were also some uh, marine members of that group that were completely aquatic and yep. marine actually, and they are also the only archosauromorphs known for sure to be live bearing live bearers so it's a weird group cool ah oh, the more you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway i thought this was really cool it makes total logical sense it's nice to see it demonstrated um yeah it's just a nice paper especially for anyone who works on 
uh, serpentine, lizardy, skinky things. Just before we move on from this, um, I, I wanted to say that you were saying that they that they are a tie to their evolutionary history. So they keep, for example, angry mor angry morphs look like angates, even though they lose their limbs, and that's that must be one of the reasons why. Ser like uh, serpentine looking angiots, like uh, like all the glasses and all that, maintain that um, lateral fold that they have on yeah, the side of exactly. the body, which is not seen in other groups. It's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's the same reason why no group of legless lizards really looks like a snake. Hmm. Because the snakes are such a unique radiation of things that have become legless yeah. that... <clears throat> there's there's no parallel that actually quite manages to make it to that level of yeah, I, think the, uh, I think the geckos got closest if you want my they opinion. did I, I would agree yeah, yeah. So most of them failed to get rid of their feet po completely poga poga poda or what you know some of those yeah. are at a glance very very snake like, -like. Yeah. yeah 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 especially because they've lost their eyelids as well which is one of the key defining features of all the snakes yes uh, yeah. yeah so yeah that's really cool and uh the last paper of our breaking news section is by ali and myri uh in ecography again just an accepted manuscript this is what happens if you go through all the the like the latest released things almost none of them were formatted so we have to fight our way through all these different poorly formatted uh manuscripts but anyway um this paper is Super cool. Um, it's called Biodiversity Growth on the Volcanic Ocean Islands and the Roles of In-Situ Cladogenesis and Immigration. Case with the Reptiles. I don't know if that's a typo or if that's... <laughs> I know nope, that's the odd. actual typo. That, like the, the title is grammatically wrong, <laughs> but... The in the 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 wow! You guys should drink. I just said a German word instead of an English word. The contents of the of the paper. <laughs> I said in height. Um, no, the contents of the paper are, are very interesting. So they compared the assemblages of reptiles on fifty three islands, and. Or, or volcanically constructed middle to low latitude land masses, which is islands, yeah. And um, and they looked at the phylogenies and they looked at whether or not there had been radiation among or within these islands. So basically, in situ cladogenesis versus immigration, what is building the communities of reptiles that are on each of these islands? And the conclusion essentially is that islands can be broken up largely, very roughly into two groups. There are the groups of islands that are extremely difficult to get to and the groups of islands that are relatively easy to get to. Islands that are difficult to get to tend to have extremely endemic fauna that are radiated, that have radiated within the island. Whereas islands that are easy to get to tend to have larger um, phylogenetic uh, very, uh, uh, diversity, diversity, that is to say, they've been colonized from various different sources At and have times, fewer. Probably. Yes, exactly, and they have and they have fewer um, uh, within archipelago diversification or within island diversification events. So the mm -hmm. classic examples of those two different classes: the Galapagos, on the one hand, has 
uh, I think exclusively endemic fauna. Because and it's on so the other hand, to get there. Exactly. And on the other hand, you would have the Comoros, uh, Comoros which uh, sits between Madagascar and Africa, which has a fauna that is largely Madagascan, but has a few African influences wouldn't, on it. Wouldn't Madagascar itself sort of be like that too? I mean, you have a lot of... Uh, uh, well, Madagascar doesn't really count because it's not volcanic. So oh, in this oh, sorry, particular yeah. case, it's not relevant. Um, and also but, Madagascar is so big that it's not really... And Madagascar is a continent. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's actually actually in, look, in, uh, I only thought from, that because of the, the number of endemics. That's all. I, I was, you know... No, no, yeah. No, I mean, <clears> and you're right because um, almost nothing that's found on Madagascar today came there, via, like was there when it broke out of Gondwana. No, it's yeah. almost all subsequent to colonization because Madagascar was sitting isolated around the KPG extinction event. Yeah. And so everything was wiped out and then you get colonized and that's why you get that diversification. Um, the reason I refer to Madagascar as a continent now is because as I was writing my thesis introduction, uh, my part of my thesis introduction yesterday, I was thinking about this and I was like, well, it's made of continental shelf. It is extremely large. It has all yeah. of these biogeographic zones. Uh, it has continental speciation-like processes. And so, fourth, yeah, just uh, to give, fourth, just to, fourth largest you, island in the world, right? It's, fourth largest yeah, island in the world. Just oldest to people, island in the world. People yeah. an idea when Madagascar was part of uh, Gondwana, is it next? It was attached to Africa and between wedged between Africa and Antarctica, right? It was Antarctica that and was India. In, and India and India. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it maintained a, con a connection with Antarctica and through Antarctica with South uh, with South America and with um, Australasia, Australia. Pro probably for I don't know, like uh, forty million years after it had broken off from Africa. Mm -hmm. And now yeah, there's oh, this is oh, I forgot one of the really important new papers that just came out. Wait a second, wait a second, <laughs> I have to pull it up. So the new paper is by Yuan et al. It's published in this new Chinese journal. It's called um, National Science Review. The paper's title is Nata Tanuran Frogs Use the Indian Plate to Stepstone Disperse and Radiate Across the Indian Ocean. Um, this paper has quite a lot of authors. They use we're, some we're fancy... About, I'm sorry, we're talking about frogs. Yes, <laughs> Nata Tanurans. It, 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 okay. Go it's on. a clay. It's a clay. What, why don't you give yeah. people an idea what that clay includes? Just so the we know. most important members of the Natatanura are, of course, the Mantelidae, the Madagascan's huge radiation of frogs, and the Rachophoridae. Um, but Two huge are, radiations. Huge yeah, radiations. Exactly. Huge, 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 huge. <laughs> um, but there are, of course, also the Pixicephalidae. Uh, yes. The Ceratobatrachidae. The, the so-called pixie frogs by the reptile yes. industry. Uh, which, uh, terrible. <laughs> which people buy because they're cute when they're, when they're sold. They're these little tiny cute pixie frogs. They yeah. turn into giant African bull bah, bullfrogs <laughs> the size of a dinner plate that will eat your face. Uh, they're wonderful frogs. They're excellent pictures of them fighting with one another. Um, so this new paper is, uh, it actually came out in advance already on the 5th of September, but I think it's now just really officially been published on the, uh, well, very recently. Um, anyway, the paper is very cool. It shows essentially that 
Um, this group of frogs seems to have originated sort of in Africa and then so it went from Africa to India and then somehow <laughs> went back through India to Madagascar <laughs> to come and, and form the Mandela so, Day. How, how, though? Because we know they can't... Land really bridges. Okay, okay. That's what Land I'm getting bridges. at. Because so, they can't disperse over seawater. Exactly. Well, the thing is that frogs actually can disperse over seawater. And what? not as poorly as we think. So there, there are two different species of mantelid frogs on the Comoros. Why am I saying that wrong today? <laughs> um, on the Comoros that have come from Madagascar. All, uh, like unambiguously come from Madagascar. And they have managed to cross uh, 150 kilometers of seawater without Through any problem. Ma floating mass of vegetation, right? And stuff like that. Like, Presumably. I mean, they haven't swum. Rafting. Uh, to the, not rafting, yeah. Oh, I mean, no, yeah, yeah, it was rafting. That's yeah. how I mean, most uh, reptiles and amphibians dis disperse through water, through salt water. Right. But the thing is that we've always inferred that um, that frogs are basically incapable of doing this. But th there is modern evidence of within the last 14 million years, um, certainly these frogs have made it from Madagascar to the, Comor or the Comoros. And presumably this is very, very rare, but it only takes one pair or one, one like, yeah, it only takes yeah. one pair of frogs, essentially, to make it across um, and... and yeah, so I mean, you I don't mean, necessarily have Mantelids to infer. Mantelids generally are not very hardy frogs, so but no, I guess their ancestors frogs. could have been hardier. Right, they could have been. They could have uh, been. I mean, but anyway, you, that's another thing. It, for, for those that don't know, Mantelids are basically the the Madagascar equivalent of of dart frogs. They're they're well, Mantella is, but Mantellids are also tree frogs and stream frogs, and so Mantella diversity is as diverse as the Rapaphoras. That look nothing like the, the Mantellas. Like the one okay, you want me okay, to okay, illustrate. Right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The one you want me yeah, to illustrate yeah. that has all these pumps and things that look yeah. nothing like a Mantella. So yeah. Gephyr mantis are one of my specialist groups and they're um they just look like uh it's just not something I would peg as a as a, a sea, lot of them look as like a mantis. No, because Mike yeah. told me, oh, I want you to illustrate this mantilla. And I was expecting a mantilla. And what I yeah. got was some sort of <laughs> like frog that looks like a yeah. like a like a like uh, it looks like a, some sort of pristimantis for people that know yeah. in, in, in Latin America, it looks like a pristimantis. Yeah. Yeah, they, they. I mean, the diversity of these frogs is is just insane, and it's in, it's been recognized as being completely insane since it was recognized that they were sister groups. So yeah. the the Rachophorids and the Mantellids. In fact, all of the Bufus species, or almost all of the Bufus species, were originally described in Rachophorus, mm. the genus. We've talked about which that has before. always been very confusing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. mentioned that And we've that actually before. made you've actually made exactly this mistake before with the Mantellids and Mantellids. I did. I know. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. The The audience also has to learn. So um, anyway, this is a really cool paper. It, it basically, they infer all of these um, land bridges and what and the timing of all the events and stuff. Probably it doesn't require the land bridges, but if the land bridges were there, then it, the, the most reasonable explanation is that the frogs jumped through the land bridges to go across. Um, and presumably they were there for, you know, a few million years, which would have been ample time for them to, to call it. It's like a version of the game forever. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sort of bounce, 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 bounce. <laughs> Gondwana okay. Frogger. Yeah. yeah. And now I'd, the I'd uh, the that. end the end of the breaking newts uh, section is as the last episode was just a list of new species that have been described. Some cool ones. Yeah. We've not gone through all of them because it's there are impossible. just too many. Yeah. Um, but so three cool ones that Gabriel insisted that we include. Uh, the first, the well, first one, it? yeah. The first one's a new Brazilotyphus, which is a Sicilian, uh, published in Zootaxa by Correa et al. You got anything to say about that one? Yeah, and it's, this is an important because you know new Sicilians are found actually not that often as you think, but um, but uh, this one is important because it they did some molecular um, studies which they're starting to appear more and more. And I'm really excited about them because molecular studies about Sicilians are going to give us, are bound to give us a lot of surprises. The taxonomy of Sicilian, um, is, uh, taxonomy is, is messy. It's still up in the air, right? Yeah. It's, there's yeah. a lot of, yeah. 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 So um, one of the things that this paper found was that microcecilia, which is a well-known, relatively well-known um, genus in South America, um, it's actually paraphyletic, and some of these Brazilotyphus uh, species are nested within microcecilia. So this is one of those things that we will probably talk more in the future because this is more papers about this are going to come out. But we just wanted mm. to mention that there's this new Sicilian that has rendered another Sicilian genus, uh, an important Sicilian genus in South America, paraphyletic. Great. Um, (laughs) yeah I haven't really looked at that I don't know anything about Sicilians Um, the the next one is a new genus of colubroid snake which is called Chemaspis um, published by Campbell et al in the Journal of Herpetology and one of the co-authors it's uh, three authors the last author at least is um, at Allopatry Alex Hall on Twitter and he does really cool stuff with micro CT, which turns out to have been important for this yeah. paper. Yeah, and it's a really cool paper because this snake was found as the stomach contents of a coral snake that had eaten it. Um, and actually, the second author, Eric Smith, who I worked with before in the redescription of an anolis from Venezuela, um, was uh, asked me to illustrate this new species to reconstruct it basically because the holotype is all messed up as you can imagine from the stomach <laughs> contents is missing a lot of the um, uh, scales, scales and, oh. and so this is, this is almost the, like your paleo reconstructive work but well, you're yeah, it wasn't that bad all, but yeah it, yeah. it, it, it entails some of that we of course there's still you know you can still see this cremation of most of the body and part of the head um, so you know it's enough to diagnose on those levels uh, yeah. But the cool thing is that it was recovered. It has never seen, it has been never seen before it was recovered from those stomach contents, and it has never been been seen after. So um, we only when was know it, when was it discovered. I don't know when this specimen was actually found. Actually, is it um, is it a recent find or is it something that that uh, happened quite a while ago? I don't remember exactly. We'll have to go back to uh, you on that. All right, all right. But. Um, I know that um, that gives you an idea of the diversity that we don't know that it still exists in the neotropics, uh, in yeah. the tropics in general, in the tropics in general. I mean, there are so many species that we imagine only knowing from a new species, a new genus of snake 
from <laughs> the stomach contents of another. Um, and as you know, coral snakes are famous um, ophiophagus snakes. They always they prey tend to prey a lot on other coral snakes. Not all coral snakes, most coral snakes do. So this is a really cool paper that we wanted to mention. Um, and uh, if you want to see the illustration, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the hashtag herpers discussion. Yes. Um, we're going to focus on Dr. Helen Beulah Gage Nay Thompson. Or Dr. Helen Beulah Thompson Gage, as she's put on, um, on Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> what to say? So, Dr. Gage, we're going to call her Dr. Gage from now on. It sounds great. What a, what a nice name for a doctor. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Gage is recognized as having been completely um, vital in the formation of the American Society of Ichthyology and Herpetology. Um, what I found really cool is that the very first issue... So on, on page one of the first issue of the first volume of the journal Herpetologica, which I imagine many of our listeners will be familiar with, was a short article about uh, Dr. Gage, about Helen Gage, written by her super PhD supervisor, Professor Alexander Ruthven. Oh, and super famous. Dedicating, yeah, who, of course, is also super famous. Um dedicating a new species well in part the paper also dedicated a new species um to her and sort of recognizing her important role in the formation of the asih and the running of the society and the leadership of the journal copea and all of these things people must remember i mean there are a ton of species that have been named after her i can think of a lot of yeah. them in my head you know, a bunch of analogies yeah. and stuff gagey 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 it's a lot of gagey um, yeah, so there are at least 11 species named after her. Um, her that's, career... That's the goal if you're a herpetologist, honestly. that's When you die, that's what you want. Is... <laughs> I, I mean, ideally it happens before you die. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you got to make a compromise somewhere, I guess you could handle the time. <laughs> um, yeah, so a little bit about her career... She uh, was, she started work, so she's basically based in um, Michigan for all of her life. She did her, um, her PhD with Ruthven at the University of Michigan. She became the assistant, uh, an assistant at the museum between 1910 and 1918. She became assistant curator then until 1923 after which she became the full curator of amphibians. And later she became the curator of all of her pathology um, within the Museum of Zoology at the University of Michigan. So basically her entire career was fo focused around this place where she had done her um, PhD, which in today's environment is not really possible because so many, especially if you want to, if you want to compete academically, you're now basically required to move between locations. Um, and that is not something that she did, but she uh, managed to do a great job in um, or have a great career at the just at the University of Michigan, which is cool. Um, 
She co-authored and authored a number of different important works, including um, descriptions of at least eight frogs that are valid today. I don't know about any other groups of animals. She also described some lizards or co-described some lizards and stuff. Um, and she worked on a book called The Herpetology of Michigan with her former advisor. They seem to have worked very intimately together for a very long time. All three species so. of it. No, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, joking. Joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, I mean, I think there are a few, a few salamanders yeah, yeah, up no, there. I'm joking, but, I'm joking. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's not the most diverse place in the world, I tell you. No. <laughs> Um, but undoubtedly, the most important okay, role. Listen here, <laughs> up north there are quite a few salamanders that you can come across, and I think Michigan has a lot. As far as like Amistoma, uh, oh. no. <laughs> Wait, I have to see how many. Now I have to see here, but the fauna of Michigan and see what comes up. There's there's going to be a bunch. You're going to have Plethodon. You're going to have a Ooh. bunch of Amistoma. <laughs> Wow. Oh, Mr. I live in Florida. <laughs> uh, well, oh, there's a book. Um, reptiles of Michigan. Anyway, her contributions <laughs> were are most famous for having basically led the formation of the or, or led the American Society of Ichthyology and Herpetology and for editing, being the editor-in-chief at Copea for several years. Um, yeah. Yeah. So she was a, a badass. Again, another badass who was being a badass around uh, World War One and World War Two. Which yeah. is just so, it's so cool that you had all of these, um, there's all of this female leadership um, going on at, at a time when, um, well, when the world was genuinely falling apart. If you want to read a really nice um, vignette on her life, along with the lives of several other important women in herpetology, there was uh, an article published by um, Parenti and Wake in 2016, um, that's Marvelly Wake, who we featured in our very first episode, um, which you can access through the show notes. There's a, a free access to the PDF there, um, which has really nice, it has a few nice images. It also tells you a little bit about her backstory and um, why she never, she, she became the honorary president of the American Society of Ichthyology and Herpetology. Um, Looks like towards the end of her life there, is that right? Uh, no, it, um, uh, relatively early. So she was oh, honorary oh, okay. president for okay. 30 years. Yeah, so, so wow. from 1946 till 1976 when she died, um, she wow. was the yeah. uh, honorary president. But she never took on the actual leadership role of president of the society. It was always an honorary perfunctory position, essentially. Um, and they seem to, so Parenti and Wake seem to um, imply that that was simply because she didn't, really want to engage at the at the leadership like she didn't want to be the person who was really in charge of everything um and she got her way so i, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't either i mean you know honestly no i i especially right now where um <laughs> i don't know about you guys my personal opinion is um, that the three societies should merge there there are an awful lot there's a lot going on there yeah, yeah. It just yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. But anyway. 
right. Okay. Well, before we move um, on, I just want to say that um, I just checked, and according to a paper written by Phillips, 2016, in the Journal of North American Herpetology, there are 55 species of reptiles and amphibians in Michigan. That's not that bad. I yeah, thought it was Suck it. Wow. That's almost <laughs> half of the diversity of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. But Europe is really bad. I mean, Europe is really bad. You don't come to Europe for a herping holiday. No, no. 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 Maybe no. go to Greece, but it's that's, paltry that's over there. Yeah. yeah. Greece, Spain, and Italy, and you're done. I mean, have, the yeah. northeast U.S. is uh, northeast U.S. for salamanders is good. Is a good place. I mean, I'm in World upstate. Hotspot. Yeah, I'm in upstate New York, which is not, you know, not the hottest spot, but still, there's a lot. Mm. There's a lot to be seen. How many of these 55 species are um, amphibians? It would be a lot. Yeah, probably like all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Almost all of them. All right. Okay. Um, Let's move on to our main discussion. We still don't have a pun for the main discussion, which is kind of bumming me out. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad that we don't have a pun. All right. Send us your puns. We want to know. No, do not. Give us us good puns. Don't encourage Mark, please. I have control. I will put them in. (laughs) All right. Our main discussion for this episode, as I mentioned before, is taxonomy. Um, Gabriel is a former taxonomist. Ethan is a taxon (laughs) enthusiast. Yes. And I am a full-fledged taxonomist. Yes, that's so the situation. It's to say that we all have strong opinions about this. We have, yes, disclaimer. <laughs> there will be hot takes and strong opinions aplenty. <laughs> so, okay, the very first question, the question that comes oh, all the sh- time. We should say, too, we're kind of doing this in a, in a Q&A format, right? Yes. We're doing, yeah. We, yeah. we're taking yeah. listener questions here. Right. So yeah. we're kind of so combining exactly. some stuff, yeah. I, I posted a question on on the Twitters, and I asked, uh, "What would you like like us to talk about in terms of taxonomy?" We got a few responses, and so we're going to try and go through those questions because taxonomy is such a huge thing to talk about. It it was nice to know sort of what people wanted us to talk about. I'm going to prepare and open a can of soda, so the noise that you're going to hear is a can of soda opening. <laughs> <laughs> and I am already <laughs> drinking and have been the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> so how about my other soda run out? <laughs> All right. Question one that is not in our question and answer form. <clears throat> well, actually, I think someone did ask this. Someone asked, is taxonomy a science? Oh, they did? It's a I very so. underappreciated. Well, currently, because it used to be the very, well, yeah. I'll let Mark start that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh to, to, to address that question specifically, is taxonomy a science? Um, if you define science as any field of research that, a uh, field of investigation that erects, tests, and occasionally rejects hypotheses, and you accept that any taxon name, so a species, a genus, anything, is a falsifiable hypothesis, then 
And only then is taxonomy a science. So there are some people who say that tax, like that say a species because uh, who basically just assert that you cannot test a species as a hypothesis and therefore taxonomy is not a science. But they're wrong. The, a species are. is I, a falsifiable hypothesis. I think I think taxonomy is a science, but I think we have some issues here with what a species is, which we'll get to. Well, yes. You know? Yeah. We will get to issues of what a species is, but even if we even if we can't agree on a species concept, we can still agree that under any given concept, you can test whether or not it is satisfied. It, right. And it I is that therefore the, a hypothesis. Yeah. Exactly. The mechanics of that I agree with. Yes. I think the, the nitty gritty of it is problematic though. Right. And so often people are not actually mentioning the hypothesis under which they are erecting a species and therefore... It is problematic yeah. to extent because... Um, yeah. We will discuss about this, but the, the whole thing is um, solved if you add several lines of evidence. But okay, let's keep, <laughs> on, keep on going. All right. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we're just going to take these in the order that they happen to be on the page. Yeah. So we're going to go with uh, first question by Anna Davison on Twitter at AMD Ecology. How hard is it to actually establish a new species? It, it turns out extremely <laughs> easy. Yeah, no, not, no. not hard at all. You just make it's your own journal and name things after your dog. Yeah. You can <laughs> no, wait, but they're saying to establish. What, what, what do they mean by establish? To name? Or they just to... mean name. Oh, okay. I think they just mean name. I oh, okay. can no, name. I thought, like, to yeah. me, I, I thought that, uh, yeah, I, I understood that wrong. I, I, I didn't oh, right. mean, yeah. So the, the part of the problem, part of the reason that we have um, this crazy complex code, the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, um, is to, on the one hand, it's there to sort of make um, like minimum requirements that any description should satisfy. And on the other hand, it's there to be as a reference point if you have a question about any sort of um, questionable description. Can you go in? Should it be accepted? Should it not be accepted? Part of the problem that taxonomists are facing is, especially in things like insect taxonomy, you have a lot of people who are hobbyists who have no idea what they're doing. They haven't looked at any of the reference material and they just establish new names. So not so long ago, uh, someone that I am aware of uh, basically had found a new, uh, an undescribed frog species and in a magazine gave it a new name and said, oh, I'm just going to call it this thing, even though it was not an established name. Officially, under the code, if that magazine had an ISBN or an ISSN number... Then the name stands. The name and the and the description officially says... Um, it at least makes clear that the name is a new name. So if it said SP Nov or said new species such and such, and it mentioned at least one character that identifies the species, the name but stands. But that's nothing. I could I could buy an ISBN number right now while we're talking. Yeah, right. That's a problem. I could I could do it right exactly. This, you know, like by the end this of this. Is, I cannot tell you how many problems there have been with people printing their stuff in their in the porches. And, and 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 having an SVN number and then publishing a bunch of crap. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there was for a period um, this this additional rule that allowed you to, to um, deposit things as CDs or floppy disks oh, as yeah. long as it was distributed. I remember and, that. Um, and so there are now provisions in the code for like digital copies and how many have to be like made available to a library or whatever. I mean, and, I mean, you can you can buy an ISBN just through Amazon. You can yeah, use it. Of their, course. They're yeah. self-publishing stuff. So exactly. that's got to change. Is, like, we got to so fix what, that. What, uh, no, but a lot of taxonomists think that that is an important way that we should be allowed to publish. Like, there shouldn't be a restriction on the type. Uh, it happens that we are not among them, I think, the three of us. But there are taxonomists who think that there should be freedom of publication mode. And you should be allowed to erect new species, for example, in a self-published book. The, the question is, should there be provisions in the ICZN for things having to go through peer review? Exactly. That is the problem. That, that a lot of the things, the important part here is that things have to be peer reviewed. Right. For people, by people that are not your friends or your family. <laughs> or um, yourself. Or yourself. Yeah. With a nickname. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, we're, we're dancing around this a little bit. Exactly. Let's try and answer the question more directly. How hard is it to actually establish a species? It is the easiest science <laughs> in terms of like write a name, put it in a well, newspaper article, put it in a magazine. I, doesn't I suppose, matter. I suppose step one is you actually do have to find a new species. No, so, you don't. <laughs> you just have to make a new name. That's you can go and name Canis yeah. Lupus. You can give it a new name, like yeah. Canis um, Stevie, <laughs> and it is a valid name. And it, as long as it's in a journal or in any publication that has a certain number of copies and is uh, and it is available in certain ways, it is a, an available name and, and can be used. And, and has to be treated in every single yeah. treatment from the species from then and on. If, you can't just suppress by it. Any chance of luck that. Canis TV is different from the rest of Canis Lupus, then you're lucky and you're always going to be the author that described Canis TV, even Correct. if Canis TV is, was described with one line, which is terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is the principle of priority, which is one of the founding concepts of the, of the ICZN, the, the code. And... Um, I mean, for the most part, people agree with the principle of priority because it makes a lot of sense that the person who first named it should get the credit. Yeah. But unfortunately, that promotes a policy of going through and uh, throwing out names willy nilly. And because if you name all the things through just through chance, you're going to get some bullseyes. Some are going to stay so. You throw some, it up at the wall and something yeah, exactly. will stick. Yeah. Some are going to yeah. stick. And so you wind up with this policy of a lot of people going through and just throwing out names. For example, the Anolis revision, where they have said, oh, we're just going to name every single clade. And later on, some of those clades maybe will stick. And then we'll, have given the the, we'll be the first ones to give those names. And our names will take priority because they're the oldest names. Yeah. So that is that is sort of the you, you can do a lot of cheating and there are a lot of people in particular. I think we, we can't dodge around it anymore. There are what, what are referred to as taxonomic vandals who will yeah. often go through and look at a published phylogeny and say, ah, I can name that node or I can name 
this particular population of that species without looking at it, just say, ah, I think that these two different populations should be recognized at species level. I'm going to give a name to one of them. And by doing so, those people technically, according to most of the rules of the code, yeah. um, if, if interpreted really strictly, are doing like are doing incontrovertible work. The problem it's, is they're not the, actually doing the work. It's the taxonomic equivalent of, you know, throwing a, First. a throw, throwing a flag on the ground and saying, "I claim this land for Spain." You know, like it's that's yes, exactly mine, 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 yeah. mine, mine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So taxonomic vandalism is um, a real nightmare. And it's something that the ICZN is completely failing to address. And uh, and the reason it's failing to address it is because most of the commissioners don't think that it's a real problem, which to me suggests that most of the commissioners are not herpetologists and don't know what it's like um, in the current environment. So, it, it, and, and among the herpetologists are also some other people, like some other opinions that are maybe not the best uh, for the community as a whole. And so there are certain actions that are taken to, for example, suppress names that are, um, that are given. So officially the code can intervene and they can suppress a name um, if, a, if, if a case is opened and it, it can be argued in one direction or the other. And then you can say, you can dismiss a certain um, uh, renaming or you can suppress an old name or whatever. But as a whole, the code just says, no, these names are available. The question is, and what a lot of people seem to miss, is that the availability of a name, so whether or not a name is valid, does not mean that the name needs to be accepted by the scientific community. And that is what's happening to a certain man named Raymond Hoser, where whether or not his, his names are valid, uh, the scientific community has agreed to suppress them uh, from a certain date onwards because he is doing dishonest science published in his own journal that he is the only author who has ever published in publishing more names than have ever been published by any other human in the history of taxonomy and naming an inordinate number of things after himself, renaming the same species multiple times, naming things after his animals and his relations and his best friends. Um, all of the, like, I have no problem with you naming things after your relations even, or your friends, or your animals. Some of the things are blatantly named after him um, and his company and things like that. So uh, there has been an agreement among people to treat, uh, among taxonomists, to treat Hoser's work as nothing other than bilge. And uh, we continue to do so. And because of the fact that the code is not a binding legal document... We are well within our rights to just say that we will ignore everything that Hoser publishes. And that's what we're doing. And it's going really well so far. <laughs> yeah. Um, probably so. also, also um, to another part of this question, um, because people sometimes ask me this, and it might be related to this somehow. People always think that um, a scientific name should be written in Latin. Or Greek, and that's not always the case. No, you can yeah. use other uh, languages. An arbitrary to combination of yeah. letters that is pronounceable. It has to be enunciable. You cannot have something that is just K Z because in the English phonetics, 
um, or, or in any phonetics, basically, it's not a not a pronounceable sound. Yeah. Um, but it can be an arbitrary combination of letters, which is something that I have just done in a paper that we've submitted. I have created an arbitrary combination of letters as a species name um, for the purpose of uh, I can't tell you why, but you'll see. Oh. It's gonna be the best thing. It's gonna be the best. You have no idea. <laughs> so, but okay. I, I imagine that that's done sometimes just as like a, a placeholder, mine kind of a thing. Again, it's the well, not uh, necessarily. You know. yeah, for example, a, a lot of people name it for, for example, Indian tribe names or or autochthonous languages from certain regions. Oh, okay, um, okay. And so, you have you know, once you're, yeah. and okay. when you're naming literally dozens of species. It is remarkably difficult to choose names. Well, you, well, well, is, wait, 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 wait. This is a, it, this is a, a know, pet peeve of mine. Gabriel really wants People to have suck species names. People suck at naming stuff, and I hate it. Because they always go the easy route, and they go, you know, and they uh, Name use honorifics. patrimony. patrimony pa, pa, I'm forgetting the word. Patrim honorifics. Honorifics, yeah. Exactly. There's a, it's an easier way to say it. Um, uh, yeah, and that is is so overused, extremely overused. You know, you get the chance I, to be creative, and I so agree with you, unless someone's naming something after me. <laughs> <laughs> well, for example, we we named a, a new frog species David Attenborough nice. because we. Well, I tried very hard to argue that we should name it Stumphia Attenborough. But they insisted that we distinguish it from Richard Attenborough, which I thought was a bit unfair. Big fan. Yeah, um, I mean, come on. He was I mean, in Jurassic yeah. Park, which is the best exactly. movie ever made. Such so. an important... Anyway, um, but no, we. I mean, we have named a lot of honorifics. I personally have not yet named any honorifics um, for species where I got to choose the name. But... Uh, I would do it in appropriate cases. The thing is, when you're describing, for example, last year we described in one paper 26 new species of small brown frogs. They're all small and brown. Well, Some of yeah, them have like teddy bear shaped markings on their backs or whatever. Yeah, but they have. It is extremely difficult to describe characters of these ant like make. The character that dis that defines the animal, anything. <laughs> Gabriel's giving me lots of <laughs> thumbs down here. Um, but to make the name reflect something that's unique about the species, when the only thing that differs about the species is like three milliseconds of its call, or you know, it, it doesn't even differ in morphology very much. It's just the the uh, genetic distances that really set it apart from other things. And they and they are sympatric and syntopic. No, no, they're alopatric. Uh, so there's something yeah. that differs. <laughs> yeah, so you give them the Malagasy, uh, the Malagasy location names like Ambuluku Patrika, nice short euphonic. Well, <laughs> At least the names are euphonic. The problem with that could be then now you've given people the location of the animal. And oh, no, 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 no. And if we're talking reptile trade. You don't, don't ever, you should not have a problem with people publishing the locality of their animals in their papers. It's extremely important information. I, I get that this is important, but you, you, it, you it should not, be in the paper. It, it has it to must because be in the paper. <laughs> the locality goes tied to, especially for the type specimen. You don't know. Yeah. I mean, if you have, to, if you go yeah. in the future and have to revise a species, you need to know where the type specimen comes from yeah. because that is that will be the specimen that it's the it's the it's the 
In other words, it's a placeholder of the species. That's that exactly. Where it represents and you the, have to be able to get topotypic specimens. If you didn't in the old in the old case, if exactly. you didn't have locality, you need to be able to go back and get genetic material from the right place to exactly. make sure that you're doing the, the right species. Place. I'm just pointing out that there are also individuals who use that information. Right. If you're looking at a tiger, or if you're looking at I don't know. Something that's really crazy cool that is going to get snapped up by the pet trade, but not disclosing the name in the in the article or the location in the article is doing much more damage scientifically than the pet trade is likely to ever do. So even super sexy animals like chameleons, we always give the locality where they're found because it's such important information. Well, and also and you, you you cannot. I mean, you cannot. <sighs> The problem you can't the argue pet- for the protection of the species if you don't have the locality in the paper either. That's well, true. I, uh, yeah, I know. I, I get what you're saying. I'm just for people that have to revise all those old names that were named with very vague uh, type localities. It's been a nightmare because then they have to yeah. go and try to find ways to. Well, right. I, I I'm thinking of like uh, Leo Triton, which was uh, it's a large newt that lives in Laos. And it was only discovered a few years ago. And immediately after it was published, they're almost all gone because trader, you know, because pet trader people went in and. Well, yeah, but the, what I'm saying is that you cannot justify the bad guess, behavior yeah, of the you, pet traders with bad science. I mean, you you have to be able that that doesn't it the 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 the, the way to solve that cannot come from the scientists. You know what I'm saying? It has right. to be a, 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 a police work or whatever to solve those issues. But right. it, it doesn't change the objective science. truth of where the animal lives. I, yeah. I understand that. Well, yeah. it also it also doesn't. It's it's not necessarily the publication of the locality that was the problem in those cases because the the people the local people almost always know where to find those animals in the first place. It's the mm-hmm. pet trade mm-hmm. finding out about the species, right, right, and then right. saying we need those things. And authorities They'll create not doing demand their job no matter where it. the animals are from. Yeah, true. Uh, local true. authorities not doing their jobs protecting it. Other authorities not not being able to, to you know allowing these things to travel back and forth. And well, and let's face are... it, the the demand for those things is also kind of a gross thing i mean it's yeah. kind of, you know it's <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very gross thing yeah 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 so um everybody listening to this, this don't buy stuff that is not captive bred please don't yeah. buy animals that are not captive bred please that's the reason why i don't have an abroad here <laughs> <laughs> yep or be extremely responsible in if you if you do buy wild animals I personally, this is another topic we'll have to have on a, on a different podcast, but I personally am in favor of the international wildlife trade because I think that it is not inherently awful. But as soon as they're harvesting at unsustainable rates and like they're not using any kind of science to base their rate judgment on, it becomes a serious problem. Yeah, um, I, yeah agreed. In general, very few species are actually wiped out by overcollection. Mostly they're wiped out by habitat destruction. Habitat destruction yeah. is billions of times worse than animal collection. Yeah, no, habitat so, destruction is the biggest problem. But but if you are adding other issues to habitat destruction, I mean, this course. is a subject for another episode. But exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's let's maybe move on. Yeah, I just the, the final the final word I'd like to say on the type locality thing is. Uh, um, I think that 
taxonomists themselves see this issue generally quite differently from the rest of the world. A lot of people are like, ooh, don't publish it. But the taxonomists understand why it's so important. And I think that's also why, Ethan, your, uh, your perspective here is different from Gabriel's and mine, just because yes. yeah. we're so like focused on how important this information is. So many species we have to deal with, with type localities of Madagascar, the fourth largest island in the world. <laughs> just yeah. like completely useless. Yeah, you know how many species <laughs> have I, to spend? I, I do. Yeah. So much I, think, money. Like, I understand what you're, what you're getting at. I guess, right. I come from, a, I'm coming from a different, yeah, a different. It comes from this yeah. perspective, I guess, of like of of being wary of uh, of what kind of demand can be created as soon as the information gets out there. But it's right. not, as I said, it's not the people well, who and, are and, and discovering the species in the pet trade. Not to draw it out who, further, but layout Triton is a bad is was a bad case overall too because yeah. because the genus. Uh, you know when we was when not we, on the lacy act was not right? on the lacy uh, act the, they, yeah. they, they, they it was a new name it was a new genus yeah. so it wasn't on there so it was it went out of control yeah so yeah and yeah. similar things happened with um, with lanthanotus and with um, xenoderma right the I mean the, yeah. the dragon snakes and the and the earless monitors they started being collected but, at really yeah. shocking levels and I mean, all I, of that I illegal. agree with what you're saying about the animals. There, there is, look, even even at some point, someone had to be the first to take a ball python from the wild right. and start right. breeding it. And yeah. you don't get there without that. And and I get that, you know, but anyway, it, moving on. You just have to be controlled. Yeah. 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 So I think, we'll try I think, and keep the... Keep that side out of the taxonomy part. There are ethical ways to do that, I think, is, right. is what I'm saying. Yeah. So, so far we have dealt with question one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but mostly we've also de dealt with Anna's second question, which is basically what, what unexpected obstacles are in the way, how spread are issues with politics and conflicts yeah. within scientific I community. Think, I think we've we illustrated that. that pretty yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. exactly. Um, so next question is from Mike Itkin or Itchen. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce your name. Sorry, Mike. Um, at I-T-G-E-N-M uh, on the Twitters. The, question, the full tweet was selling species naming rights. And I am fairly sure that Gabriel and I are going to have some conflicts of opinion. We already did in some Yeah, we, we touched on this a little bit before, right? <laughs> yeah, we we yeah, talked yeah. a little bit about this. Yeah. Uh, so go ahead. You, I two, think you two weigh in, yeah. A lot of people have a problem with this because it winds up creating patronyms or, or um, you know, honorifics. And so, and so Gabriel makes his face where he sticks his finger down his mouth, uh, his throat. Um, so we the, basically there are there are two groups of herpetologists who do this. The there are the German the herpetologists <laughs> who, do, who do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, so there's a website called biopat.org where you can go and buy naming rights to a number of different species, many of them from Madagascar, because the herpetologists working in Madagascar have uh, were among the founding members of this or of this organization. The rule of how this works is half of the money goes toward the research of the herpetologists. And the other half goes toward conservation projects in the country of origin of the species. 
However, because Biopat is located in Germany, is run, well, it does not have good PR, the species naming rights are phenomenally cheap compared to all other competitors. So you can buy the name of a Madagascan snake for I think just $4,000 to $6,000. Whereas the typical prices for American, uh, for neotropical species that are being sold on various different markets in America, like recently there was just a, an auction, are upward of 10,000 at the minimum and often up into the 20,000 to 30,000 range of US dollars which creates something of a problem because, uh, well, on the one hand, people could invest in the German thing, German side, but they don't know about it. Um, but it also sort of undervalues all of our research in comparison to the, to the um, American research. Well, I wonder um, how much of that has to deal with how, how much more expensive it is to work in certain areas in the Americas. No, it's cheaper. No, it's it's uh, and most of the money for the American um, auctions or in, in several cases that I have heard of, of names being sold for American reptiles, the money exclusively has gone to the Ameri to the researchers themselves, Oh, which is very worse. different it's from how worse. we do things here. So for, for here, for example, the money has to become it, it either gets used in genetic sequencing or in fieldwork costs or things like that, it does not go into the pockets of the scientists. Mm. And I know of a few examples of, uh, at least in America, of herpetologists who take the naming rights, uh, the naming right money and just, I mean, they also are investing it for their, for their research purposes and stuff, but it's sort of going toward their, you know, their own pockets as well. And after the show, Mark, Which is, Mark will tell me who these people are because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's not really important who it is, but that's the sort of thing that should not be okay. No. Um, I think that the way that the Germans do it with the um, with this Biopat initiative is really fair. I mean, half of the research going to, half of the money going towards the research and half of it going toward conservation, that's 100% of the money going toward the well, right think, sort of direction. I, I think you outlined both the advantages and the and the problems right there i think i think it's great and i'm all for it if we're talking about that money going towards the research or conservation right. yeah I think conservation you, of the area is important i think yeah. once you go beyond that once once we stop talking about that and we talk about people you know uh misusing those funds then i think you have a problem right so, Which, for example, uh, what we are doing with some of the funds that have recently been raised um, for things that I can't talk about right now is they may go towards creating a new reserve um, for a tiny parcel of forest where this chameleon that we discovered last year, this described this year, uh, Coloma Julie, is only found in this one tiny fragment of forest. Um, they just west of Andasi Bay in, in eastern Madagascar, and we're trying to use the money to sort of set up a new um, a new reserve there, which would also benefit the community, and they would mm -hmm. run it, and that sort of sort of thing. You need that sort of initial uh, startup money, so it can be extremely good. It can also be done completely wrong. You know, you don't necessarily want an oil company to come in and and name a species. Now I want to buy the naming rights and like name it like the McRib is back or something. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, I think um, a lot of times there's also um, a clause that say that the scientists can basically just reject the name. <laughs> oh, I just thought of the best example. So there is a frog from Madagascar called Gephyromantis runuzwiki, named after the Russian Newsweek uh, magazine or, or um, newspaper, which was a... See, I know, awful. You Isn't see it why awful? I hate this? It's so bad. Um, and they named it after the, after the company, but they got the money so that they could do the research from that funds. So, um, I mean, what does, yes. it ma- what does it matter? Honestly, like, exactly. Me, it's just the, one frog in the ocean of frogs. Well, not no, only my, that, but the no, frog doesn't that, care. No. But <laughs> my ears care. My eyes care. I don't. I don't. This is ridiculous. This is. I, I hate that. <laughs> Oh, so good! My ears I, I think care. If the, I My think if the money, care. if the money is going towards like what Mark is saying, where we're talking about setting up a reserve or something. Well, yeah, I, but, the, but, the, but listen, we are both artists, Ethan. Yeah, there's also there. There has to be also some sort of um, beauty about this. It cannot be all. I, I understand. I mean, it, it definitely serves some purposes, and I, I agree. If the money is going to where it's, right. it has to, right. I mean, come yeah, on. Right. If you have, if you had, if you had Rackaforus McRibus Bacchus, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's that's <laughs> not great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Uh, it, it's also a little bit like respect. You know what I mean? Like, show a little bit of respect for what you're doing. If, yeah. if these species, Especially these names live in perpetuity until the, I mean, even after the animal goes extinct. Even yeah. after the McRib is no longer back. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you're, and if this is going to be, let's say that you, you, this species ends up being the flagship species to preserve a certain region that's going to get a lot of coverage. I mean, just show a little bit of respect. That's all I said. I, I, you know? <laughs> I, I get, I agree with you. You're right that there's an aesthetic element to this, but we're at the point now where you know there are some pretty bad names coming out even without yeah. this kind of influence <laughs> yeah but well, yeah. we should not be the people responsible for more of them so okay we move on next question yeah. john haas on twitter at neotropical 99 lumpers and splitters how do you define a species and how does the line drawn impact science this is the question i, the, I like the, okay so can i just john say, i like Derek's take on this <laughs> Whose take? The uh, a species is whatever the hell you want it to mean. Oh yeah, <laughs> not wrong. Well, not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there there are a very large number of um, species concepts that you can use. One of the problems in taxonomy is that people almost never define which species concept they're using. Mm-hmm. Um, we, as a as a working group, we use what's often called the unified species concept or um, the uh, multi-delineation species mm-hmm. concept, where you basically you create your hypothesis and then you add various different lines of evidence, evidence. that corroborate the hypothesis. Yes. And so we have, for example, we create a, a two new species or, or one new species diverged from a, a, an existing species. And we say, okay, genetics supports this result uh, from the mitochondrian and the nuclear, nuclear. genome. These yeah. are treated separately because they have um, relatively independent rates, although they are obviously correlated. The external morphology agrees with it. The osteology agrees with it. Obviously, all of these data sets are 
uh, correlated with one another because of the fact that they're all related to a single animal. And so yeah. some people have problems with that, but they are still independent tests of the same hypothesis per unit, right? And that for me and is so, the best way to define a species. It has to come. Oh, thank you. There's also there's also behavioral data added to that. Of course. So yeah. So yeah. so and you calls know, and, yeah, and diet and, and yeah. all kinds of stuff. So all the things when you put it together, if they keep giving you the same signals, or or most yeah. of them give you the same different, you know, the signal that is a different species, then you have no way of dispute that that's a new species. Right. Exactly. And the question becomes, what do you do when some of the lines of evidence point in one direction, but, for example, one says extremely strongly in the other direction? It, it then you have a situation reasons. similar. I, I yeah, guess, so, I guess you know, exactly. what, what I would just say, and the reason I started saying what I said was it's nowhere near as clear cut as I think a lot of the public thinks it is. Thinks it is. I just want people to think this way. This is the way that they should think. If you go through time and one thing's become another, it is not clear cut, right? It, it, it becomes when, 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 um, um, uh, uh, a color changes into other, it goes through different shades. So the same happens through evolution. It's not that clear cut. Nothing is, black and white. So for example, Mark yeah. was talking about genetics. There is a lot of interaction and then different... Um, and as we've established now, almost all speciation happens with some degree of gene flow. Exactly. Unless the things are truly allopatric, uh, so truly separated geographically, it's almost never a really clean-cut boom. Yep. So that happens especially in plants when they have polyploidy uh, speciation events where you cannot back cross, so there's no way for there to continue to be gene flow. Yeah. But in animals, it is super rare because for the most part, you're not changing your ploidy levels. You're, you're generating a new species by just continuing to breed in a separate population. So yep. your migration level, even if it approaches zero, never really achieves zero. And so you are always going to have a little bit of intergression. That's the question when is how long is the intergression going for? That's when forward? additional data comes in help. Exactly. Because then you have different lines of evidence adding uh, uh, adding evidence that that is a different species, like different yeah. different behaviors, different morphology, different coloration. But, different and of course, uh, but it's not wrong some, to say that that the the demarcation of species is that's a human construct that we're talking well, about. Yeah, correct. And, and yeah, and I think. I, the species like a, don't care. Right, they don't care. <laughs> the species are going to do what they're going to do. <laughs> but at the same time, a cat is different from a dog. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yes. The question is, is a sand cat different from a house cat? Different and from yes, a Scottish you know, wild you know, cat. You know, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. So, so the, 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 there's a... It's, it's, we, the, the thing is that we can go as... The, the problem is, and the, the difficulty is... How fine grained are we going with this? Well, like, I mean, how... if you ask, right? No, I agree. But I, I was going to say, if you ask a, a member of the general public, you know, how to, to define a species, I think one of the things that comes up a lot is uh, animals that only interbreed that with can their own, breed, yeah. right? Yeah. That can yeah. interbreed a huge with misconception. That's simply not true. That's just not yeah. correct. Part yeah. of this, <laughs> no, yeah. because uh, yeah. the, if an animal can, if, if, what you mean is that animals that produce high produce hybrids when they interbreed, and that it changes a lot depending on the animal group that you're talking about. 
Right. Yes. And we yeah. know from from uh, from birds, for example, that there are intergenous, and in frogs, there are even interfamilial uh, hybridization events. So yeah. two different frogs from completely different families, because a horny male frog will fuck anything. Yes. Uh, they, like uh, your foot, no problem. Yeah. And yeah. So, so every now and then there will be these these crazy uh, cross events. And then some of those might succeed in producing an offspring. And sometimes those offspring might be uh, productive. The, the chances of that are extremely rare, but they are extre- they, there are cases and, where and there it, are extremely well, yeah. high level. So high, highly diverged groups that do cross. You want to talk? I mean, that's that's really out there. But I was gonna I was gonna bring up the like the unisexual ambistoma stuff. Yeah, where, I mean, that's also know. a spontaneous species generation. Yeah, the which is fascinating, of course. Parthenogenesis and all that is yeah. super common in reptiles and many amphibians. Um, uh, so even in animals that people don't, um, you know, I think there are cases of I want to say is the Komodo dragon. Yeah, they've had. There's parthenogenesis in clothes. Yeah. The, it, it, even if in a species, it's not the common way of reproducing. It might occasionally happen. So there, right. it, yeah. there are many ways in which this is, um, you know, in which nature finds a way. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, yeah, no, species concepts are a big pain in the ass. If you want to find out more about species concepts, I recommend going to university and studying uh, <laughs> evolutionary biology. There will be whole courses on speciation and species concepts. Step one, and, be a tortoise. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and of course, the ultimate test is always going to be, com- or maybe not the ultimate test, but one of the ultimate tests is going to be uh, coming into the lab, trying to breed your species, seeing if they can produce viable offspring, seeing if those offspring are able to reproduce themselves. And even then is not necessarily disproving the idea that these things in nature are evolutionarily independent lineages. Mm-hmm. So It's often the case, actually. Great. Next question comes from Charles. Prepare to drink, is, um, Ethan, because it, it, Mark oh, will use yeah. a, a, there's a, a term for the one of the things we will discuss here, which is in German. Oh, we will have to discuss. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yes, for the ring uh, species. Yeah. At, at Incog Polywog has asked on Twitter, could you talk about a bit about the weirdness of species complexes and ring species? I'm sure there are a few more oddities like that as well. Also, our localities and morphs. Dart frogs, Ranatomaya imit- imitator being my favorite. Just arbitrary, or is there any consistent distinction? All right, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, yeah, so much. What is a ring species? Right, and tell me the, the yeah, German let's start word with for ring it. Species, tell me the German word for it. It's Rassenkreis, right? R- R- I forgot the name for There is a term for ring species. Yes, that. Rassenkranz. But so, it's not, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that term. Oh, it is. The, I, it's a lot, a lot of neotropical taxa that were considered uh, ring species were always called Rassenkranz. Is, is it, it, is it, is it, my understanding is that the idea of ring species hasn't really... Born, yeah, for the most part, it's flopped. It, it yeah. hasn't really borne out as as a theory, right? No, it yeah. sucks. Yeah. <laughs> well, part, part all, all of the, the classically presented examples turned out not really to be right. ring yeah. species. Right. Even among birds, I mean, not restricted yeah. to to, ver- uh, to to um, 
squad mates or amphibians. But if you look at a broader scale, just in general, most ring species concepts have just fallen flat on their faces. Yeah. Some really great examples, the the salamanders in California. And Satina. Um, yeah. yeah. So in Satina, they are just not ring species they they have localities which have higher um uh, population structure so they have very low levels of outbreeding but there's not necessarily a you know a ring concept going on there right um the the beautiful example of the um of the yellow-bellied toads um which are i can't think because of the Eleutherodactylus at the moment. It's super uh, loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's super loud. Uh, he hates this topic. I know. He's yeah, been hating it. He really me. is not enjoying it. Um, <laughs> come on. What are the yellow belly toads called? Uh, fire belly toads are in the oh, genus. Bombina, Bombina, Bombina. Bombina. So Bombina variegata. Thank you very much. Um, so the Bombina. I didn't know uh, them by yellow belly toads. I know them by ring, fire belly ring toads. species. So the yellow bellies are variegata and, and fire bellies are um, marmorata or um, the other one. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, their ring species also fell apart. And yeah, so basically they, they don't hold up to things. But the more interesting part here is the species complexes. What do those mean for taxonomy? Um, essentially, it means that you can't have nearly the confidence of, of a field identification as you would like to have. Mm -hmm. um, and this is especially true on, on um, online databases like iNaturalist. So uh, in America, it's quite good because the number of species complexes that are really, really impossible to distinguish externally is not so high. The number of species complexes in Madagascar, however, that are basically impossible to distinguish externally is very high. Mostly amphibians, so, right? Mostly frogs, yeah. yeah. So you go and you look at the iNaturalist reports for, for Madagascar, and a lot of them we've only identified to genus level because it's simply not possible based on the photographs that are available to identify them any further. Often we need to have a male, and the male needs to have femoral glands that are, that are fully developed. And if you don't have those ventral pictures, you can't really tell what the species is. So one of the things that we that we have now gotten into discussion discussing with the people who are running iNaturalist is the idea of introducing uh, species complexes and species groups as uh, especially species groups um, well, uh, there's as as um, as identifiable levels within the ta taxonomy that iNaturalist uses and so that would allow us to identify things to species group without having to get them down to this exact species level, which is pseudo-precision in these cases. I mean, species complexes are definitely a thing, and, and we see it a lot, and there are absolutely intergrades of a lot of things that we would consider separate species. You know, like I, well, I yeah, mean, but they, it, this, is, this is an important distinction, right? What is the difference between a, a hybrid swarm or an integrated thing and a real species com complex a species complex refers to multiple species that cannot be easily distinguished from one another. Yeah. Even even if so they, it doesn't even, necessarily mean that they're uh, interbreeding. It means that they're distinct species that yeah. we don't know how to tell apart okay. yet. Yeah. Externally. Right. Externally. I mean, meaning externally. That, yeah. Exactly. So, so a lot of moths, for example, which can only be distinguished based on their genitals. Mm -hmm. 
they fall into species complexes because it's basically impossible to tell them apart until you look at their genitals. By the way, that's not that uncommon. Like several snakes have the same issue. The several snakes can exactly. be uh, identified by their hemipenis. Well, although I have a theory that that's because the descriptions are so bad. But, um, <laughs> but, but uh, you know, Gabriel, that would not surprise me at all. No, it is. That is the case. I'm not joking. But um, yeah, but but yeah, it's like I, another way. Like for example, I work with Ameva Meva, which is um, the the green amoebas for people. And I when I was I, I was uh, I, I did a revision of those of Ameva Meva group complex. Um, one of the things I did was elevating several subspecies to species level. And what, what also can be, what Mark is saying is that even when some species may look different when they are adult, sometimes when they're juvenile, they look very similar. So even those have to yeah. be treated as a complex because if you have a picture of a juvenile, you cannot, even yeah. if, so yeah. you know what I mean? The Kraga story day are the absolute worst. Yes. Just impossible to tell apart. Those persimmons. <laughs> a lot of... You, uh, you, Shouldn't even bother. <laughs> I was going to say, if you can a lot get into species group, you're good. Yeah. The uh, there's a I see a lot of that stuff with with newts where there's a lot of um, really similar like crested newts. I had somebody ask me a while ago to you know what was the the larval that I larval stage of a crested newt that I was looking at, and I just was like, it's a crested newt. I'm not. It's a triturus. I don't know what it is. Well, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Even for for, you know, for for amphibians, that's even magnified because you have all the larval stages to go through. Also, yeah. so you have to add to that the larval stage, which looks exactly. so different from yeah. the adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. make it a real problem. Yeah. Um, so uh, the second part of this this question is asking about localities and morphs. Yeah. And so if, that, if these are just arbitrary or if there's consistent distinction, uh, the oh. question. Hobbyists, Sorry, go on. hobbyists love morphs. Yeah, love them. Love morphs, love locales, and but yet I, but still they, cross them all the time. Yeah, which yes, pisses and there, me off. And there is a, if, if the animal looks different and is uh, uh, its distribution is uh, is geographic that that that. So that morph is geographically isolated in a certain area. That's telling you something that it might be a different taxon from the other stuff that you're looking at. Sometimes, so, yes. Well, a lot of times, actually. Yeah, yeah. A lot but, of times. There's a lot, a lot of, but not always. And, yeah. and for example, Ranitomaya imitator is a great example. Because Ranitomaya imitator, the color morph depends really strongly on which other species are found along with it. Mm -hmm. It's the same sort of problem that you're having with Heliconius butterflies. And Heliconius are the model species for studying this sort of color, like the, the color pattern species boundary discord. Because it was shown in Heliconius, and I'm sorry, I won't have these papers in the show notes because finding all of them is just a pain in the ass. But it was shown in Heliconius that gene flow preferentially occurs at color loci and not in the other regions of the genome. So mm -hmm. you have these... Um, you can have morphs basically sharing color forms genetically, but everything else is stable between the two of them, which is probably not what's happening in Ranatomaya. But instead, Ranatomaya is probably just converging on these same color morphs as the frogs that they're imitating. Yeah, this, this happens and, also in um, um, some false coral snakes that tend to yeah. uh, mimic yeah. certain coral snakes in their area. So they change yeah. the pattern and coloration depending on what color species they're mimicking. 
But but that I must I, I I have to say that that's not the majority. When you see a, a difference exactly. in, in a morph, it's telling you something normally. Yeah. But uh, I mean, so for example, let's take let's take the example of the panther chameleons. The paper for this will definitely be in the um, uh, in the show notes. The uh, so there's a paper published by the Malinkovich group, which basically showed that the different localities of first for Pardalis, the the panther chameleon across northern Madagascar, um, they have different color components and they're genetically a little bit sorted based on these different localities which makes sense if the females at every locality are sort of um selecting preferentially the males of their color morph but the problem that comes from this sort of sampling is that if you have localities that are separated strongly across your sampling range you get because you're basically creating bins, you create the impression that there is no integrate across this whole diversity. And you have then forcing it. If you have 11 sampling localities, you get out 11 different species. Exactly. So if you're really doing a transect and you're really sampling continuously across this range, do you really get that pattern? Or is this just a really polymorphic species which has uh, sort of color blending from one r part of the rainbow to the other. And it's amazing how much like the rainbow it is. It has blue and green and red and yellow and all of the different, like, it's, it's just <laughs> astonishing how the spectrum sort of works across the island. And in that paper, what, what really shocked me about the paper is that the press release basically said um, these are 11 different species of chameleons, which is simply not true. Um, even even if you were being really really strict about it and dividing it like hell, you would probably not get eleven whole species out of it. Um, but anyway, it was just did not have the evidence to support the sort of claim that there were eleven different species involved. And this is a problem. Where do you draw the line? When does it become a species? And leading into directly into the next question, yep. uh, which was actually asked sort of by Patrick Hennessy at the Patrick underscore H and Anna C Afonso Silva at Anna C. Atarina As. A-N-A-C. Anna Katarina As. Anna Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Anna. Um, both of them asked sort of when does the subspecies become a new species? That's sort of part of this continuum of localities and morphs and subspecies and species. And then when does a species become a super species? When does it become a genus? All of that sort of. A big, um, a big way to look at it is, and, and this is the way I approached Ameva Ameva, which was famous for this problem. Examine as many specimens from as many localities that you can. It's going to drive you crazy and you want to kill yourself, which is so happened to me, but that's what you have to do. <laughs> you have to see as many specimens as you can from as many localities as you can. It's the only way to really understand what the right. pattern right. is. Yeah. So in terms of answering the specifically the question, when is it, like what is a subspecies? What do they mean for the taxonomy uh, and for splitters versus lumpers? Um, 
There's really no clear answer to this. It seems to be largely philosophical. Well, this all My started with colleague... ornithologists. They are the guilty ones for the subspecies concept, <laughs> by the way. Well, I'm Blame not sure about that because, <laughs> nah, but if you look at the Lacerta species in Europe and oh, Podarsis, no, being used... some of the Podarsis species have 40 yeah. plus yeah. subspecies. They've been used in the in herpetology widely because it became super popular to do for a long time. Like if you look at yeah. the papers from the 60s, the 70s and all that, all subspecies, but, uh, but even the in the 1800s, origin, people yeah, were making yeah, these the crazy subspecies. With I think it started with ornithologists and people looking at butterflies. This is what mm. this is the two people guilty for this BS. <laughs> God damn! Always good to be able to blame the other groups. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean. Um, it's really hard to draw a line. My colleague, um, Oliver Havlicek, who, who works just a few um, doors down from me here at the museum in Munich, he, in his, as part of his PhD thesis, published a paper which was on the species of Lycodryas that are found across the, um, the Comoros. Um, and basically, he was talking about when should you use a subspecies concept like, when does it make sense to call these things subspecies versus Never. species? Are they on evolutionarily separate trajectories? When along the trajectory do you call them a subspecies versus a species? What's really funny, so this paper, I think it was published in PLOS One. It'll be in the show notes. Um, what's really funny is that one of the reviewers, I think I have permission to say this, um, one of the reviewers of that paper uh, was basically just said... This paper is an excellent example of when not to use subspecies. <laughs> so even in a paper where in the title it says subspecies versus species, um, or when does it make sense to use subspecies, the controversy continues to rage. So this uh, is not a question that we can my answer. My personal answer to that is never. There is never a good point to use subspecies. I quite agree. Yeah. Never. I am not a fan of... Um, of subspecies in general. I think that there are some where it can be argued because the because things are very weak, but it may be mostly just to formalize like different locality forms mm -hmm. or something. Or if you have in two locations species like things that are really in the process of speciating. Yeah. Usually usually Mark this have, must happen to you when you look at um, these subspecies and you start looking at them in detail, either you find out they're non-differentiable or you find out that they are differentiable enough that they deserve to be a, a separate evolutionary right. uh, species. Right. So I have not found the first case where I see, oh, well, you know, no. There's never, there's always been a clear cut line whether it's- I think there was some argument that the, that early, if, if it's early in the speciation process and it's not yet guaranteed that the speciation process will go to completion, or, or like, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a, a young branch and you don't know what the fate is going to be, then you would use the concept. Hmm. But for me, it's all, it's all very spongy. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with that answer. What do you guys think? Yeah, sure. It's never good yeah. to call something right. else of a species. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, splitting versus lumping is a bit of a different um, different topic. Maybe we should touch on that quickly because I've recently published two different papers. The, one of them was called uh, splitting versus lumping in the cofilinae. The other one was called splitting or lumping 
uh, splitting and lumping within um, the Kalama Bay complex or whatever. Um, so basically, in the one case, we were trying to argue against people who were trying to lump multiple different genera, uh, which is something that I sort of mentioned in the past. We had this, this is my, my big fight series of papers. Um, for the people who were asking me why I have problems with the American societies, um, the, 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 the um, amphibian species of the world database, if you want to understand it, Go read that series of papers. It starts with Schertzadel 2016, ends with Schertzadel 2017. In between, there's a Pelozo et al. 2017 paper. Um, anyway, those that series of papers was about splitting and lumping, and and um, this is something we haven't mentioned yet that would be sensible. So splitting and lumping at the species level, I think, is less of a problem because we can, as as Gabriel and I have said we can establish hypotheses and they can be easily tested. The problem is that above species level, your hypotheses become somewhat arbitrary. When, like, how do you test whether, uh, if you have a group of animals and it's a monophyletic group, where should you put the names on the tree? The, anything above species level is relatively arbitrary. Yeah. So. You know, we can. Sh that's that's why, by the way, you cannot compare the species diversity of genus A of lizards with genus B of frogs because the the genus complex, uh, the genus concepts are just completely different. Which, by the way, is the reason we have the anoles debate. Exactly. Because I was say. the anoles are all considered one genus, whereas in any other group of lizards, they would be divided into five or more different genera based on their morphology and distribution and everything else. The thing narrows because down to we have different concepts. When, it when, a, right, when, exactly. when a clade is monophyletic or not. If you're, if you're supposed to split a monophyletic clade or not. But the problem with that argument is that any clade, if you pull it back enough, it will be monophyletic. So exactly. So you, you become, this, yeah, exactly. So, so this is one of the reasons for the phylocode. Oh, we're doing such a good job linking all of the different questions. So the next question, Owen Davies, doc, at Dr. Owen Davies on Twitter. We've mentioned him before on the show. Um, uh, question was, what the fuck is up with the phylocode? <laughs> And <laughs> to which, I mean, so, so the nice thing, the, the, the idea about the phyla code is basically trying to sort of fix nodes at comparable levels where we would set names. Because right, right now, with the current Linnaean taxonomy, it, there's no scale that is comparable between the different nodes. The phyla code would somehow stabilize this so you can compare the different ranks right which would be wonderful i mean i'm i'm in favor of the idea because right now i'm fed up with the fact that we can't compare these different well, groups isn't it true too that you know like the linnaean taxonomy just isn't it's not doing the job it's not it's not doing the trick as far as it's doing fine at species level it's failing above species yeah, that's level the thing. yeah yeah and that's yeah that's the thing i mean we we need to try and find some way that creates comparable groups so that we can do more reasonable tests without having to incorporate the phylogeny necessarily However, there are problems with the filler code of course big problems with the filer code <laughs> it did not go down very well when the idea was first published <laughs> what i found really frustrating is that when i was doing my bachelor's 
at the University of Edinburgh, I decided that I wanted to get really philosophical and try and think my way into big problems in science. And I started thinking about the idea of like, what is a species? What is a genus? Where do we draw the lines in these sort of comparable things? I sort of realized this problem of not being able to compare the different units. And I was like, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to sort of standardize all these things? And then I came across the paper proposing the file code. I was like, fuck! <laughs> it was exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> so, scooped, simply because I hadn't read enough of the literature to be philosophizing. I should have been reading actual papers instead of just trying to be highfalutin. Serves me right. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to just uh, wrap up the, the idea with this genus... Uh, lumping thing you know if we have uh, a group of frogs my, my opinion with genera is that you ha if you have a group of frogs um, or if you have a group of taxa and that group can nicely be cut chook, so that the two different units are diagnosable from one another and that they are monophyletic uh, indisputably monophyletic why the hell not because your current genus circumscription, if it's the, 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 the lumped version, is less diagnostic than the split version. The and this was what word, we argued. The key word this, there is diagnosable. Diagnostic, exactly. So when, when we argued in this, in this 2017 response to the Pelosa et al. paper, we basically said, look, there should, be, um, there should be what's called an economy of change. So you should be trying to make as few changes as possible to try and keep things as stable as possible. But there should also be a principle of parsimony applied here. What makes the most sense? What requires the least amount of, of crazy change? And yet, what creates the best possible result? And so we wind up with not one genus that has two different subgroups that are totally un that are totally different from one another but two different genera that can easily be separated from one another the problem is we were arguing against people who can't tell the animals apart because they've never looked at them <laughs> and that is where the argument died so um, yeah but it does it does uh, in this case yeah no anyway I won't get into it but so these are cases where, at least for me, it seems to be clear cut. The question is then, where do you introduce subgenera? Do you introduce tribes? Do you introduce all of these types of things? Well, tribes, like there are loads of ways. Tribes are necessary. Uh, tribes are above it, I know. Yeah. But. They're necessary. I don't have a problem with tribes at all. Tribes are fine. Subgenera, okay, fine. Tribes are only a concept that's used in, in the Neotropics, though. That's part of the reason that they're so uh, weird, is that they are really favored in the Neotropics, and then among people who work on snakes, and then in no other groups. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, it would be great if these things were also applied in some kind of comparable way. But yeah. part of that is because the there's no phylogenetic rank that makes sense with the names that we're applying. Um, the next question is the most important question. Also by Owen Davies. In fact, the next series of questions are all by Owen. He got really carried away. And also uh, the reason why I don't, why, why I don't do herpetology work anymore. <laughs> So Owen's question was, are alpha taxonomists super duper important? And if you think so, why don't the people with money seem to agree? Yes, and that's the reason why I don't do herpetology. I mean, anymore. 
I feel personally attacked. <laughs> um, uh, indisputably, alpha taxonomists are super duper important. Mm. Alpha taxonomists are the people who can tell you, who tell you what you have in your environment. Yes. Um, just by doing sequencing, you can't necessarily tell what species you have. You need to actually treat them taxonomically. Totally and if, if you don't describe your diversity, you're going to be working only with some kind of working unit, operational taxonomic units, which help us to speed up the rate of, uh, of understanding of evolutionary processes yeah. and whatever. But they Conservation. don't help there are us so to many, understand so things. I exactly. did not we know need what to an describe alpha taxonomist things. was. Uh, I'll, I'll come clean here. Oh, and alpha I, taxonomists are just taxonomists, the people who yeah. give the names. Yeah, the, okay. the person who names the species. It's not the leader yeah. of a rogue group of taxonomists. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it might be. It sometimes is. <laughs> oh, I have t-shirt ideas. <laughs> Boys, <laughs> we need to create a red bubble shop. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I'm the alpha taxonomist. All of these, these are beta taxonomists all around me. <laughs> um, Usually yeah, the person no. that, that carries the fucking paper is the alpha taxonomist because there are a bunch of beta taxonomists that are not doing shit and you're writing it. <laughs> Story of my life. There it goes. It's so true. And the gamma taxonomist is the last author who's actually funding or supervising the research. <laughs> great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The question as to why the people who with the money don't seem to agree. Um, uh, yeah. Well, it's sort of uh, two reasons. First of all, society doesn't understand what alpha taxonomy is and doesn't understand how important it is. And so the people who have the money do things into sexy science that they can easily understand. And they don't like to put things, they don't like to give money to people who they consider to be stamp collectors, as taxonomists are often so lovingly referred to. Um, or coin collectors. So there's there's that, but there's also the problem that alpha taxonomists themselves tend to be extremely poor at selling their work. So we, as a, my, my group has something of an exceptional stance on this because our new species seem to be covered more in media than many other groups, possibly because we just, Madagascar is so amazing and we keep finding these crazy new things. And especially in the last few years, uh, we've had quite a lot of uh, really quite cool discoveries, the discovery of fluorescence in chameleons. Obviously, that's not a taxonomic thing, but we did a lot of stuff with that. The gecko lepus, that got a lot of media attention. We have, as I say, this new gecko that's coming out probably January time um, that I've already spoken with some news people about, see if they're maybe interested in covering it for the I New love, York Times. Can and I just stuff. say, I, lo I love how it sounds like you're dropping an album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the thing, I, I think that, that Mark does a really good job at that. I mean, that's that's he what does, all yeah, taxonomists yeah. have to do. You have to sell, it, not only taxonomists, I mean, we are in the same boat, uh, Ethan, when we have to yes. sell our yes. work as, as artists. You have to be out there. And the problem yes. is that a lot of Taxonomies well, people, are not really out uh, there. 
a lot of times people they don't buy into the art they buy into the artist they want to know exactly. about you and what you're doing yeah. and you know yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's part of the thing as well with taxonomists is they tend to be people who sit in museums and hide <laughs> and don't go out and don't socialize a huge amount. They're not like, they're not trying. Also, there's this idea that all of the big questions in taxonomy don't really exist. And so it's hard to make sexy big conclusions because the the coolest thing that you can possibly do as a taxonomist is describe a new genus or new family or new whatever like discover something really different but that's not going to be world changing ground shaking it's not going to cure cancer but you said it's not going to show us something fundamentally new but you said something uh one of the past episodes mark that which is true when you described the new gigolipis that gigolipis that got so much press and you said well but this is a species that there are other gigolipis species that have the same thing with the scales falling and everything you made something that is not well known to the general audience known and that could be yeah. done for a lot of groups that are super exactly. cool and they have a lot of cool stuff yeah. that people don't know and if you put it if you put the attention to that people are going to get interested i i think yeah i mean i think i've always thought taxonomy was was interesting stuff even if it's not considered sexy science by a lot of people yeah. i i i think it could be i think there are a lot of times where, you know, you have situations like that where you've brought something into the spotlight that may not have been before just because of that, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, part of the problem that uh, – so so on the, on the funding side, part of the problem is that you can't go to a funder and say, we don't want to innovate. We want to continue working at roughly the same pace that we're doing, keep up our standard, and maybe in five years we'll have described another 50 species or in the case of most taxonomists, another 10 species. And, um, you know, <laughs> and that, and that's, that's sort of a, a realistic thing. But if I go, for example, to the German Science Foundation and say, hey, I would like to do an alpha taxonomy project, they will laugh at me because they don't have money for that kind of non-innovative, non-creative work that is simply involved because taxonomy is... Yeah, Almost industrial in the way that it works. There's not a lot of it's, kids growing up who say, I want to be a taxonomist no, when I and grow then up. There's a major shortage of taxonomists. Yeah, exactly. And it's extremely yeah. needed because but we are, are losing... there are more taxonomists working today than ever in history. But the problem is that we're losing more species today than we ever in history. Well, yes. And, and, so, and discovering more than yeah. ever. But so, you know, we have to make sure that we discover them before they go extinct. That was that, yeah. was, that was a roller coaster right there. <laughs> just <laughs> Yeah, it's it's crazy. We're just not keeping up with the in Madagascar we cannot keep up with the rate of discovery. Um, so Owen also asked a question about uh, total evidence trees. And the so total evidence trees would be trees that include data from calls and morphometrics and morphology and genetics and build together to be a single tree and then they or or they make multiple different trees and then see how those converge. And all of these things, you know, this is sort of an emerging type of method. It is one that I think is um for phylogenetic testing, understanding the actual phylogeny of a species, I really don't think it's a valid method because the extent of convergence, especially in things like um, uh, any, any ecology-related features of morphology, are going to be a serious problem. But 
If we start to take this con this this combined approach to species delimitation, and we the the ideal because right now the way that species delimitation algorithms work is we we put in a phylogenetic tree usually based on genetics or almost always based on genetics, and then it divides into basically arbitrary groups that it thinks are good levels that probably don't have any kind of interbreeding. So. One property of almost all species delimitation algorithms right now is that they dramatically overestimate the diversity of species. So, for example, within uh, Ebonavia geckos, which we recently divided, the Ebonavia were estimated to be something like 16 separate species, which is ridiculous. So we made it five, I think, maybe six. Uh, I can't remember now. But and so that is that's basically we took that tree in it and put it into a species delimitation algorithm. And then we decided ad hoc that we so then we tested the many different units that it produced and reduced the species to actually manageable, reasonable units, what much was, less than the overestimated. What was the, 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 the time, the estimated time of divergence between the clades in the... In the, in the, you remember? I think the whole thing, the I think the whole genus is under thirty million years, and some most of them are under fifteen million years, if I'm not mistaken. But that's not bad at all. That's quite a you know. That's the ones that we've recognized now. I think the ones that it was putting out were something like one million, two million, like very very small. Which is not terrible either, but. Yeah, but it also means that literally every locality would be a separate species, yeah. which was not possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have this this cutoff, and well, no, we we don't have this cutoff. We have this this current way of doing this. An ideal way would take the combined evidence of all the different things that we have and look for places where it agrees between the genetics and the morphology and the calls and all of that and use that to refine this delimitation mechanism. Um, but that's not necessarily related to, well, it's sort of related to taxonomy, um, but it's sort of, uh, it's also uncharted territory. It's something that I know some people who are working on right now, um, but it's not really anything where we can say if it will be better than our current method. And his final question, unless you guys want to say something about that. No, that's fine. Um, nope. The, the final question he asked was, which arbitrary cutoff for species do you guys use to split herptiles? Oh, no. He used the word. That's what I was saying. <laughs> oh, no. Don't use the word. word. Don't say herptiles. Please no, don't say herptiles. It's a terrible herptiles. term. Don't use it. Ever. It's, it's such like some, a bad term. It's like some species. Don't use it ever. <laughs> it, it came up. It came up at some point in the seventies, and then it sort of stuck. I I recently found a paper that was called, um, the foods of some. Uh, what was it? Foods of some arpen of some Arkansas herptiles or something like that. Just a title that you can't help but say in a in a southern accent. <laughs> Bones of Got some Arkansas herptiles. Herp <laughs> so many herptiles. Yeah. 
Um, please don't use the term herp tiles. Her, uh, <laughs> herps yeah. is fine. Um, informally. Yeah, the, the, informally. the question of... Yeah, exactly. Informally. Don't use it in scientific publications. Please. Um, <laughs> the, the question of the arbitrary cutoff, it's usually it's sort of um, established per group. So it can be established post hoc by putting in a phylogeny that you think is pretty well resolved at the species level and then looking at the differences in the divergences in any particular gene. Um, so COX-1 would be a good example. And then you can say, okay, well, on the whole, most species differ by uh, between, let's say, 16, uh, between 6 and 16% in COX-1. So let's set something like 8% as our typical cutoff for do different species. I think in Madagascan reptiles, I don't know what it is. I think it's around 10 or 11% in COX-1 because COX-1 has a relatively high substitution rate. In 16S, which is the gene that we usually use, at least for amphibians, um, depending on the different fragments, it's usually around 3% divergence that we start to say, okay, these are probably two different species. And um, there are various different papers that have sort of established those cutoff uh, lines. But those are usually used, again, as a first line of evidence to identify new species. And then we go further and we actually deal with the taxonomy in the proper process. So we go and actually check the specimens and describe the species. If, and we have a paper that was just came back with minor revisions where we've done this, we found two, two populations that are separated with 3.3% in 16S. So typically we flag that and say, oh, this is a candidate new species. But then we looked at the morphology, almost no differences. We don't have calls. We don't have uh, basically any other data. Genitals. The only thing we have is a geographic split. And they're frogs, so we don't have genitals. And they are, they're, they're set, separated by um, about a 50 or 60 kilometers along a mountain range. And in, one, in RAG1, which is a nuclear gene, they differ in a single substitution. So it's likely if you were to get a, a sample somewhere in between them, you might have integration between these different populations because they are not isolated from one another. So it would be one of those candidates to say they are, you know, they right. are diverging. And so we but call this of, yeah. exactly. So what we call these are deep conspecific lineages, because until we find evidence that they really are separate species, right now the evidence is not strong enough that we should really treat them as separate species. I like how you go with that and not subspecies. Right, right. <laughs> but it's a nice, because, I mean, this is a typical thing where yeah. you might turn around and call this a subspecies. Yeah. They, they yeah. are not uh, vicariant, right? They are in the same side of the mountain range. They are not vicariant, or they are in different... They're separated on two different mountain massifs. Oh. But, but, the, but the two mountain massifs are connected at 1,330 meters oh, okay. by a single band okay. of continuous forest. Okay. So okay. theoretically, they could get all the way there, and there's been no surveys in between to find out if they're there or not. Okay. Because it's extremely difficult to get to. But theoretically, they could be. But th we have this availability of, of reversing and saying, oh, no, even if we have huge divergences, if there's no real evidence for them being separate, I mean, if it gets too big, then it becomes ridiculous to treat them as, as the same species. But at a certain threshold, you can still have some room because, you know, what is two different species in one case might not always make two different species in another case, simply because 
um, you know, it's a by it's a by species complex or species yeah. group thing. Yeah, and I think that wraps it up. I hope that you guys are satisfied with our discussion of taxonomy. It's obviously uh, an interested and complicated field, <laughs> interesting and complicated field. Um, not as complicated as some other fields, I should say, <laughs> but um, at least there's there's healthy room for debate. <laughs> Except when the sort of species thing, don't use sort of species. <laughs> yeah. and don't use herb types. Yeah. So. yeah. And please don't use hoser taxonomy. Just don't do it. A lot of people get trapped because it's it's officially published and it is available online. It even comes up in Google results. But just don't. It's not worth it. Oh. Friends don't let worst. friends. Yeah, friends don't let friends use hoser names. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and on that note, uh, you can follow us all over the internet. Uh, Ethan, where can one find you? I am at Black Mud Puppy virtually everywhere. Except where you are? The nudist. Oh, the nudist, right. <laughs> I, we have to tell <laughs> I know, I know, you do every time. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Gabriel, you are. I'm at Serpent Illus uh, on. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Lovely. And my I website, my Mark website, Shirts. My website oh. is gabrielugeta.com. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. I am at Mark Shirts uh, on all of the things, except on Instagram, where I am Mark underscore Shirts, because I'm bad at consistency. <laughs> uh, I also have a website, markshirts.com. And you can follow the podcast at squamatespod.com. You can find us on Twitter at squamatespod, on Facebook, squamatespod, Instagram, squamatespod. You can send us a direct email, uh, squamatespod at gmail.com. You can go to iTunes and be awesome and leave us a review and give us a rating that makes other humans find us. And then we get a more broad and interesting audience you can always ask us questions we're always happy to hear from you thank you for listening over the holidays we hope that this episode comes out on time itunes has been like "Ooh, it might be delayed because of holidays um so we'll see but anyway as we say on the show hakuna swara Yes, and a happy new year. Happy new year, I believe. Yeah, happy new year. Oh yes, and a happy new year. What tune was that?